Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Well, shalom, shalom, everybody. Hey, welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, and I am so super pumped uh, that you have joined us and are listening in today. I hope that your week is going well. I hope that the weather's great wherever you are. I hope that you have had or are having a wonderful Pesach. I uh, had a wonderful Seder uh, over the weekend, if that's when you celebrate Pesach. Um, and are enjoying Hakamatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this week, and um, drawing closer to the Father through the feast, through the Moedim, because that's what they're all about. And uh, so I just want to say welcome. If it's your first time listening to Image Bearers Radio on Hebrew Nation, and you're catching this when it airs on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Sunday, I just want to say a big hello and welcome, and thank you so much. Um, I want to say thank you to the to the guys and gals that make Hebrew Nation uh, keep it running, but mostly thank you to you, the listeners, um, who continue to listen and engage, and that's just awesome, awesome community that Hebrew Nation Online is building, and I just I'm so thankful for this platform and to get to engage with uh, with you all each and every week. Uh, so if it's your first time listening, welcome. Welcome into the family. Welcome into the conversation. Uh, when we post this on uh, the archives over at Hebrew Nation Online, make sure you comment, tell us, you know, say hey, tell us where you're, you're writing in from and things. Uh, if you're just new to Out of Ashes Ministries, where I'm the pastor, um, then we're on website, uh, outofashesministries.org. We also are on Facebook, on YouTube, um, and on MeWe, and I think that's it for <laughs> right now. And uh, so we also do our own podcast on iTunes. So a lot of ways to get in touch with us, to contact us, and to reach out and let us know that you're out there listening, and we surely do appreciate it. Uh, for you old-timers, or not old-timers, we have only been just a little over a year, but for those of you that have been listening and listen consistently, thank you so much for the feedback, for the comments. Uh, I heard from someone, a friend of a friend of someone this week that says, yeah, they um, they were talking about something you got, you were talking about on uh, on the the offerings and stuff. And uh, this person that was talking to me comes and follows our Shabbat, but it does not does not follow our Image Bears Radio stuff yet. And they said, "Well, we haven't heard that." And they're like, "Oh, it's on this." And so it's really cool that you guys are spreading the word and um, and having conversations in your own relationships. Super, super cool. And uh, and I just appreciate those of you who listen faithfully uh, and are a part of our kind of online mishpacha, our online family. It's really, really super awesome. So uh, let's say prayer. Let's go into prayer for just a moment. And then we're going to continue our discussion on Vaikra and the offerings. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father, our Father that is in heaven. We bless you and we thank you for this opportunity to dive deeper into your word, to mine it for all of the truths that are in it. And Father, we ask your guidance and your leadership as we seek to bear your image in our world.
Amen and amen. All right, so we are still uh, talking about the book of Vayikra. Uh, we're not necessarily going along with the, the partial, the Torah portions, um, just quite yet, and we may not do that. We may jump back into our gospel um, series, so I'm still trying to work that out. But I, I really wanted to just spend a few weeks because one one podcast or one uh, radio segment, one hour-long segment, is not enough time to challenge the way we think about Vayikra, about the book as a whole. Um, and as I say often, it's, the, in my opinion, the least read but the most misunderstood uh, book of all of Scripture. And um, an hour is just not long enough to talk about the book and then the contents of the book of Vayikra, Sefer Vayikra. Um, we're dealing, first of all, with a, a temple system. And a temple system is not something we're, we're really familiar with. Um, however, I, I think that we, as my good friend Jeff Morton says, uh, returning to Eden with Dina Dye, by the way, I'm going to plug his podcast because it's really great stuff. But as Jeff and Dina talk about, um, when, we, when we think about Washington, D.C., we think about the Capitol building uh, and all that, in, in some ways... Um, I think in, in a lot of ways, but in some ways, that's very temple-esque. Um, it's the place where our governmental order comes from, uh, or disorder, depending on how you look at it. Uh, it's the place where you know, our, our leadership um, lives and, and works and, and legislates from, and all those kinds of things. Um, and in the capital city, you have not only Congress, which is temple-ish, but then you also have where the president lives. So if you think about ancient times, you have, for instance, Jerusalem, where you have Beit HaMikdash, the holy temple, and then you have the king's palace. And so while I, I don't want to you know, conflate the two too much, um, I, wanna, I, I wanted to kind of draw some similarities so that we kind of understand really how, how the, 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 the tabernacle and the holy temple function and what was their role in the lives of, of ancient Israelites? Um, and not only Israelites, but of all cultures of, 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 ancient, you know, of these ancient times. Um, and we say ancient, I mean, uh, up until even in through Rome, uh, Greece and Rome and, and Persia and, and places like that, that, you know, the, the, this temple system is very much central. It's, it's very much central um, to these civilizations and to their cultures. And so I know that if we've not done a lot of thought or study and research on the temple, it can, it can seem like this faraway thing. But it's really not. In a lot of ways, it's really not. It, it can be really familiar to us. So I want us to kind of lean into that familiarity and, and step back and as much as we can, uh, you know, kind of draw some ties and, and kind of connect to that ancient way. So the book of Vayikra, again, it, it, we have to deal with the temple um, you know, quote unquote, the temple system uh, that existed at the time, and uh, it's it's very important. Out of that temple, insist out of that temple system uh, comes all of these different tentacles, if you will, that we have to kind of understand um, individually, but also in the context of the system and the the function they they have inside of this this temple structure. Um, so we have things like the Kohanim, the priests. Um, we have the Kohen Gadol, right? The high priest. You have the Levites, um, which all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests, right? And so we have that that group, um, which most of Vayikra in in the ancient Hebrew, uh, I say ancient Hebrew. Um, I don't really have a time for you, but 
um, in an old Hebrew, not ancient, ancient, but old Hebrew, uh, this was called uh, Torah Kohanim, the instructions for the priests, and that's what Vaikra really is about. It's about instructing the priests, um, and there's a bunch of, of uh, mitzvot, a bunch of commandments and things um, in, in Vaikra that are not for the average everyday Israelite. They are specifically for how the Kohanim uh, act individually, you know, in their, in their everyday life, and then especially how they act in the holy service. Um, and so th- that's, an, that's one tentacle, right? Uh, and then we have the one that we're kind of focusing on, which is the offerings. That's a whole, a whole nother thing because that, um, we have, we talked about it last week and the week before, um, the difference between calling them sacrifices and calling them offerings. Um, the Hebrew karban, karbanot, plural, um, is, comes from the word karav, which means to draw near. And uh, I would encourage you, as I have the last couple of weeks, to go to YouTube and uh, search the Temple Institute Vaikra, and then search the Temple Institute Zav, the, the first few uh, parshiot of Sefer Vaikra. I would encourage you to go and listen to Rabbi Chaim Richman. Uh, his episodes are between 20 and 30 minutes. They're not real long. And listen to the way that he talks about the offerings um, it's very, very good, and it's very healing, in my opinion, or for me personally, it's been very healing um, to think about this, this, an- this ancient and kind of disconnected system uh, in, the, in the sense of offerings instead of, um, you know, and offerings that would draw the people near to God as opposed to there's an angry God who hates us and who, so, so he hates our sin and stuff so much that something has to die, Right. And so we'll just kill these innocent animals because God is, is you know, has this huge bloodlust. So um, we have the offerings. We have that kind of strain of things. Um, another tentacle that comes out of and is, is innately connected to uh, the tabernacle and the temple is the, the very Moedim we're just celebrating, the feast. Um, you, you almost cannot have a feast day um, without the sacred space, without the, the tabernacle and the temple. And you say, well, the first Pesach, yes, the first Pesach. The first Pesach, though, everybody also slaughtered their own animal in their own house. Um, and then we get to where we have the commandments not to do that anymore because Hashem was going to centralize um, that worship and those festivals when His Shekinah came to dwell in the Mishkan. So um, we have this, you know, I won't use the word evolution because there's a lot of baggage to that word, but we have this progression of, of the nation coming together and the people coming together and having a centralized, not only form of government, but uh, more importantly, form of worship and place of worship. So um, you have the Moedim that come out of, out of the, the feast days. And let me just make this quick comment. Um, there's a lot of division around the Moedim. There's a lot of division around the feast days. And I, and I used to be a divisive person, and I, and I used to you know, be really belligerent and really militant about the way I believed. And, um, and the Moedim should be a time when we come together, not when we divide. And yet, um, these, you know, these seven Moedim, the, the three main Shlosh Regalim, the, the pilgrimage festivals, um, these three main festivals especially, and, and those that surround them, um, are, are some of the hot spots for division in the Messianic or Hebrew roots uh, communities every year. Um, over the calendar especially. And some people celebrated Pesach last year, some people, I mean, last month. Some people celebrated this weekend. Some people will celebrate next week or next month. Uh, some will wait for Pesach Sheni and celebrate next month. 
Um, there's, there's all of these different divisions based on calendars and all this kinds of things. And, and my, my point is, I don't throw shade on anybody for celebrating any, you know, if you are studied and you feel um, convicted and, and you, you can validate for yourself before Hashem why you celebrate when you do, I have absolutely no uh, qualms with that, no issue, because we're, we're all learning, right? We're all, we're all trying to, to make it to the same place, and that is to connect with Hashem. That, that's it, period. That's the point. Um, however, I, will, I do believe that once you start studying the, the temple, which is the hub for all of these things, the, the, the temple is, is the connection, it is the source of all of these, all of these things, the Kohanim and the, the, the Moedim and all these things. It's the source. If you remove that central hub, if you remove that foundation of the house, then all the other things fall apart. And in my opinion, that's why we have so much... Uh, so much division over the calendar and the priesthood and the name and all of these kinds of things, where if we actually just studied and researched the temple and the tabernacle, the sacred space, then we could understand a little bit better about if things changed, if they had to change, why did they change? You know, we went into exile, or Israel went into exile, uh, the Jewish people, and, and they had to yet keep this, this faith alive and this covenant alive, and so they had to adapt, and, and it's nothing different than we do today. One of the most ironic things, and then I'll move on, one of the most ironic things around those of us that are, are pursuing the Torah, I don't, I don't like to say we keep the Torah because we're not, um, but we are pursuing the Torah. Um, one of the most ironic things is that we, we bash tradition, Jewish tradition, um, all the while we make our own tradition. <laughs> we, we, so we have a, a group of people that have survived war and genocide uh, and gas chambers and exile and all of these th- all of these horrific things that have preserved the only reason we know what Passover even is is that is that these people have laid down their lives in order to preserve it and they have adapted and they have changed and they have evolved amongst nations that have sought to just to snuff them out and yet we look back on them with such arrogance and with such um, I don't even know the right word. I can't find the right word that's strong enough to convey the, 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 the feeling I have. But we look at them with such, uh, you know, such arrogance. And, and we say, well, we're not doing your traditions because y'all made a bunch of stuff up. All the while, we're making stuff up. We're, we're making stuff up because we don't, most of us don't know what we're doing. Um, we're learning as we go. And it's a beautiful process. But I, there just has to be some respect, and there has to be some mutual respect and some understanding. And so, um, the you know the Moedim, you, you remove the the temple, you remove the tabernacle, and all of those things become huge, just quagmires. When we go back to how the Jewish people preserved them, uh, and and how they they we have the history in Mishnah uh, and uh, Tosefta, and then we have uh, Talmud and Gemara. We have all these these historical records. And yet we just, we just don't want to, to engage them. And I don't understand why, because that would clear up so much of this stuff. So we have, um, so out of the tabernacle, you have all these tentacles, you have more, you have the furnishings, um, you have, you know, just all, all government, you have uh, decisions that come from uh, the Sanhedrin, which is another kind of tentacle of the, you have all these things. And, and my point is the importance of the temple is that they're all tied to the temple. So we can study the feast days as long as we want. And we can, I mean, we can study the, the feasts for years and years and years, but if we never connect them to the temple, then they're going to be skewed a little bit. Then they're, they're going to be, you know, they're not going to be completely accurate. We can study the idea of priesthood because B'chadashah talks a lot about the priesthood. 
We can study the priesthood, quote-unquote, all we want, but if we don't connect it back to the Avodah, the service in the temple, and, and the book of Aikra and all these things, then our view of what priesthood is is going to shift. So I, I hope I've spent enough time kind of beating that, <laughs> beating that horse. Um, so we've talked about Vayikra, kind of the, the naming of it and those kinds of things. Um, we, we kind of settled on the first five chapters in which there are the, fir- are the five main types, uh, main categories of karbanot, of offerings. Um, I'm trying not to say sacrifices. I would encourage you to, to make that a part of your exercise as you're, you're studying through these things and talk. I know every piece of literature probably you're going to read, even translations, biblical translations are going to say sacrifices. Um, but I want to work out of that terminology just because of the baggage that that holds. Um, and talk about the offering. So you have in chapter 1 the olah or the burnt offering. In chapter 2 you have the mincha, which is the grain offering. In chapter 3, you have the shlamim offering or the peace offering, shalom, shlamim. Um, 4, you have the chatat or the sin offering. And then uh, chapter 5, you have the asham or the guilt offering. And we talked last week, we spent a lot of time reading uh, through a lot of passages of Scripture talking about um, uh, these, this idea of atonement and, and, and how do these offerings atone and made the distinction between unintentional sin and intentional sin. Uh, transgression, or uh, I'm trying to think, uh, Rico Cortez says um, uh, transgressing. Um, there's another word he uses that I really, really like that I can't think of right now. Forgive me, Rico. Um, but that um, when we transgress, right, then we, when we do it accidentally, that's what the offerings really are for. The offerings are for those unintentional things that we did, whether we find out about them or we, we don't ever find out them, but we think we may have transgressed, um, then we, we bring these offerings. For an intentional, what, what most scripture will call presumptuous sin, or sin on purpose, none of these offerings cover that. None of these offerings atone for that. None of these offerings um, have, any, have any efficacy in presumptuous or intentional sin. The spilling of blood does not by itself atone and cleanse for, uh, for sin, for transgression, period. Encroachment is the word Rico uses. It just popped into my head. Encroach, I love that term. It's a legal term. And that's what we're dealing with when we deal with, with temple uh, understanding, is there are legalities to how we approach and how we operate within the sacred space of Hashem, because His Shekinah dwells there. So we have these offerings, and, and so this intentional thing, um, we finished up last week's episode by reading about Manasseh, Manasseh, um, and how the book of Second Chronicles and the book of Second Kings treats the end of Manasseh's story very, very differently. Uh, in the book of Second Kings, it's kind of like, well, uh, Manasseh messed up really bad. He was an awful king, period. But Second Chronicles, which was written much later, probably during or post-exile, uh, Babylonian exile, comes back and, and in, in Second Chronicles, it fills out the end of Manasseh's story a little bit and where Manasseh actually repents. He repents, and this is in Second Chronicles 33, chapter 9, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 33, uh, verses 9 through around 16 or so. But it tells us that Manasseh actually uh, pleads with Hashem and, and he, he confesses, he takes the offering of his lips, right? He takes the offering of his lips and he, he repents and then after that repenting, he brings an offering. But just bringing an offering would not have done anything for Manasseh's, um, you know, for the, the transgression that he did, the encroachment that he had. And let me just say this. 
we read last week, and so go back and listen to last week's uh, um, episode because we're not going to go back through all these passages. We read, oh gosh, I don't know, 12 different passages or so, a handful of different passages, especially like what you have in the book of Isaiah. Where Isaiah is is you know Hashem is is speaking through Isaiah and it's it's very very a uh, very volatile situation about you know don't bring me your offerings don't I mean Isaiah chapter one opens up with this this um, you know this uh, engagement against Israel for the offerings and all these kinds of things and the the point there in in these uh, corrective prophecies is not that what we're talking we're not talking about unintentional sin. We're talking about Israel presumptuously and purposely engaging in idolatry, which is and intermarrying with the nations around them and taking on their gods and all these kinds of these are these are not things that Israel did by accident. So when we read the prophets and they seem to be really down and really you know uh, really critical of the offerings and of the sacrificial system, the offering system, what we have to understand is that there are they are not. Um, they're not dealing with people who are who are trying their best and who are accidentally um, sin, you know, transgressing every once in a while. That's not what the story is about. The words of Hashem through the prophets are through the Nevaim are so strong because he's dealing with intentional, presumptuous, on purpose, meaningful encroachment and transgression. And so I think that's a really important point to make. Is that we're we're not we're not talking to this we're not talking the same language we're not talking the same uh, same situation uh, between like Vaikra where it's talking about these offerings for unintentional sin and let's say Isaiah right or Jeremiah for this this outright abashed uh, rebellion and and presumptuous sin so uh, these these offerings are really important that we think about them and that we understand that there is, in Hebrew, the word kavanah, which is intention. There is an intentionality to all of these offerings, and that intentionality is the important part. And we would say in Christianity, we would say it's all about the heart. That's exactly what the model of the tabernacle was all about. It was, it's all about the heart. And uh, Rabbi Richmond does this in a, couple of his, uh, in a couple of his talks, these short talks I was re- referencing, um, and I, you know, other rabbis will talk about this. This is very well known in, 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 in Jewish understanding that man was created the same week as the animals. And, and we have in us an animal nature. Um, it's also called Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, and Yetzer Hatov, the, the positive or the good inclination. But we have this animal nature, and then we have also this divine spark, something that the animals don't have. And the, the, the goal is for our animal nature to be subdued. Think Yohanan HaMagbil, the John the Baptist, that our animal nature needs to be subdued. That part of us needs to decrease so that the divine spark, so that the, the, he can increase. Um, uh, Paul, Rabbi Shaul, talked about it as spirit and flesh, right? The spirit and flesh war against each other, and we have to deny our flesh so that the spirit may, may rule in our lives. It's the same language, and it's the same idea. We think about it differently because we don't understand uh, Jewish understanding, and that this is not a new concept. Shaul is not bringing up a new concept. This is something that the tabernacle was instituted uh, in order to deal with so that we could return to Eden, the temple is not the goal. The tabernacle even is not the goal. The goal is that we return to an Edenic, uh, an Edenic state of being. Uh, 
Uh, as I've said before, my, my friend Mike Clayton you know, asks, where is the beginning of Scripture? And everybody will say Genesis 1, and he'll say, no, you're wrong. The beginning of Scripture is Revelation 21, because that is the same story as Genesis 1. The Bible is this beautiful, big circle where we were in Eden, and we were under the authority of Hashem. We were in His order. Everything was beautiful and prosperous. Maybe not perfect, but beautiful and prosperous, and we messed it up. And so chaos entered the world, and God's order was pushed aside, not because God is out of control, but because his partners, humanity, that he invested in and empowered to spread and to be stewards of that order, that uh, kadusha, that holiness, we fell down on the job. And so it's our job to tikkun olam, to repair the world of that issue. And when Messiah comes to complete that process, then we have Eden again in Revelation. We'll be back right after the break. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bears Radio, where we are still discussing the offerings, and uh, I hope this conversation is helpful for you. Um, I'd love to get some comments about whether this, um, these ideas are new or whether these are something that you've kind of always understood. Um, be, that's important for me because I grew up with a certain set of understandings, uh, and then those understandings were either tweaked or changed altogether as I moved through different um, Christian circles and church circles, and so that kind of gave, gives me the background and the context um, and the perspective that I have today. But I understand that that is a very limited perspective, so the way I teach a lot of this stuff and the way I bring up um, some of these issues and try to correct or try to help, be helpful in correcting some of these ways of thinking, a lot of that, most of that, comes from my own you know background or my own issues, if you want to say it like that. So I would be really interested to hear um, if some of these concepts are new for you or maybe you were learning them and they were new at one time or like, no, this is how we've always thought about it. And that would be really helpful. So um, when this episode is posted on Hebrew Nation, jump on the comments. I'll share it on Facebook on our Out of Ashes Ministries page as well. And I would love to know, like, where, where do you stand with, um, with this conversation and, and how, do you, how do you think about it? So uh, what I wanted to do for this second segment is uh, there is there are steps um, that go into offering and offering <laughs> the way you offer an offer. I'm sorry, I can't do it without being redundant. Uh, but the steps in bringing an offering. Let's do it like that. And I think this is really, really, really um, incredible um, because we we're going to see through these steps this beautiful choreography and and the intentionality of it. We, you know, I don't know if, sometimes I think maybe we think that the offerings are treated kind of like how we treat God sometimes. And again, this is not an indictment on any one person or group. This is experience. I'll just talk about me. Um, how many times have I done something intentionally knowing that it was damaging and knowing that it was encroaching, that it was sin, that it was transgression, 
And while doing it, I already knew that Hashem would forgive me for it. So I just did it. And then like, well, I asked for forgiveness later. In the heat of the moment, in the, in the enticement of sin, in the enticement of that animal nature inside of us, that, can't, that, you know, that we struggle to control, um, that animal instinct, we, we do things and we justify it by knowing that Hashem will forgive. That's presumptuous sin. That's presumptuous transgression and encroachment. And I think sometimes because we treat the, the forgiveness and the mercy and the presence of God so, um, so greasy and so easy, uh, you know, and just so, I don't know, just so soft that we, we take him for granted. We take his, his mercy and his grace for granted. And I, th- I think we think about the tabernacle and the, the offerings sometimes like that. Like, well, you just bring an animal and you just, you just slaughter it. Like, you just make sure the blood and it's good and everything's covered. And so what I want to do as we walk through these, these steps in the offering process, um, in, in this, in this uh, particular rendering, there are 15 steps uh, to offer an offering. Now, if you're a really good student and you really paid attention uh, and you're really familiar with the Haggadah that we read through during Pesach, a traditional Haggadah, guess how many steps it has? How many, how many sections it has? It has 15, right? And what's really super cool, I, I love this because the 15 steps in the Haggadah it mirror the 15 steps in, in the, they're tied to the 15 steps of offering a korban. Not one for one, but they are, there's a reason why there's 15 steps in the Haggadah. And, and that is because everything, everything in Jewish practice from which the Haggadah comes is tied back to the temple. So just a quick reminder that uh, during the time of, of the, the second temple, uh, during the first century and around that time, uh, the Sadducees were in control of the temple, and they were very corrupt. And so the Pharisees, which were mostly centered around the, the Galilee, the Galil, we've done this in our Silent Years uh, series, um, they, they kind of said, well, like, since the, the, since the priests, the Kohanim, who were Sadducees, were mostly, uh, are corrupt, then we're going we're gonna to preserve um, the, the, the Kohenic, the, the priestly, uh, order and kadusha, even though we're not priests, and even though we don't serve in the temple, we are going to to take that responsibility on ourselves, because they could kind of see the writing on the wall that things were not going to last, and and out of devotion for Hashem, and so um, out of Pharise- so the so in the Pharisees' time, the the family table became uh, the altar, synonymous with the altar, or in practice and function with the altar. And so, what it, you know, as I say often, my my teacher Joseph Good says that the the highest form of worship in Tanakh is eating. And I mean, we could spend I don't we could spend like six episodes just on that idea. And I may have Joe uh, on one day to to talk about that. That that the highest form of worship in Scripture is eating. Just think about Pesach. Think about the seder. Not only I mean, yeah, we have the, the roasted lamb, of course, you know, and, and and you may do that or you may not, either way. But we have bitter herbs, right, that we dip in salt water, that we eat, parsley. We have horseradish that we eat. We have, these things are, why do we, why, do, why does Hashem command us to have this meal and it's centered around food? Why are all of the Moedim, except for Yom Kippur, centered around food and then it in itself is the absence of food? 
right? I, I mean, food is central, and food is central not for food's sake, but because the offerings were eaten, most of them. They were eaten even by, either by the koinim, by the priest, or by the priest and the giver, the offerer. And so the whole idea of food is, we, we've got the whole idea of food wrong. Again, one of those tentacles that stem from the temple is the dietary instructions, the dietary Torah. And so if you disconnect and you just study the dietary instructions and don't connect them back to the offering, again, you're, you're going to be skewed in how you understand them because they're an act of worship. They're a form of worship and communion with Shekhinah, with the very presence of Hashem. And so, you know, Yeshua, I'll quote Hanok Young, my good friend, Yeshua didn't eat, quote unquote, biblically clean. He ate kosher. There, there really isn't a lot of, there, there really isn't any such thing as biblically clean because the foods that we're, that we're talking about, kosher slaughter, those were the very, those were the sacramental meats. Those were the, the ceremonial and the, the meats that were offered. Does that make, I hope that makes sense because that is huge. That there, there really is no such thing as biblically clean. Now, my family and I, we don't eat kosher. We also don't eat pig and we don't eat, you know, shellfish, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't eat kosher. So I understand that kind of in the middle thing. But understand that that it, it, from, a, from a Jewish perspective, and I believe from a, a Tanakh, a biblical perspective, there is no in the middle. Kosher has to tie back to the temple and to uh, sacrificial offerings, a ceremonial offerings. I'm sorry, I said sacrificial. Pop myself with a rubber band. Uh, but that's, again, we have to tie it back to that because that's the foundation of it all. And so these things about food and about meat, the Pesach Seder, 15 steps, and 15 steps to offering uh, note. And I want to go through these because I, I really think that they'll show you the intentionality of this and that if it wasn't as easy as just bringing an animal and, and somebody else slaughtering it and, and then you go about your way and your sins have been forgiven. It, it doesn't work like that. It never did. J- just in the same way that you can't, ju- you, you, can't, you can't just go, well, like, I'll sin because I know that the blood of Yeshua will cover it. Like, that, it doesn't work like that. It does <laughs> Okay, so the first step in offering a korban is called hakrava, hakrava, and this is where the offerer or the owner of the animal brings the animal to the entrance on the east side of the mishkan, uh, and you know, of course, later the temple. We're going to be talking about the tabernacle, but later the temple, uh, the east side of the mishkan, and he makes a declaration there, and he declares what type of korban it is. And, and then takes it to the, the correct place near the altar. Um, so uh, if it was an olah or a burnt offering, it would be brought to the north side of the offering. Different offerings were brought to different places because the blood was manipulated and applied at different places. So the, first, the very first step is that the offerer brings and has to declare out loud what the korban is. So this is an olah. This is a, uh, you know, this is a mincha. This is, a, this is an asham. Or whatever, and so that, and you have to publicly declare what type of offering you're bringing. <laughs> I hope some of the, some some New Testament passages are are just banging into your mind as we talk about these things. So you have to make a public declaration of what the the korban is. That's called hakrava. Okay. So after that's done, the second part is the smicha. Smicha. 
And this is where the owner stands with his animal. It's, if it's an ola, let's say, on the north side of the offering, um, facing westward, which would be towards the ohel moed, the tent of meeting, okay? Um, and he places his hands between the animal's horns or on its head, and, and uh, it's placed in a specific way. I think it's left hand and right hand over the left hand, if I believe, if I'm, if I'm not correct on that. And they press down firmly. They lean onto the animal. And they do what's called vidui, which is confession and, and prayer. And so that the animal that really to lay out to smicha, that, that laying on, um, is really a leaning. It's a leaning into. And they confess vidui um, and, and, and have prayer there. And you can find this uh, in Leviticus 1.4 is a, is a good um, uh, uh, place for that. So that's called smicha. Now, whenever, um, whenever someone has smicha, that is called authority, um, in the Gospels, uh, the people asked about Yeshua, they said, how does he have this authority? Where does he get this authority, right? Because in order to, have, uh, in order to be able to be a teacher, or especially a rabbi, but a teacher, you had to have smicha. You still do. You have to have smicha, which is authority. And that comes by the laying on of hands, Okay. The same idea here is, is this, this idea of smicha, okay? That's number two. Number three is shita. Shita is where the owner, uh, a kohen, a, a priest, or anyone else that's trained in the procedure, it could be a Levite, that's trained in the procedure, slices the throat of the animal. Um, and this is, this is a highly, highly important point. This is super sharp tools there is there is no pain felt. There is no there's no flailing around the ground. There's no there's no there's none of that. The 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 rapid and extreme loss of blood um, causes the animal to quickly become unconscious and feels no pain during the subsequent steps. So let's talk about what we talked about a uh, week before last, maybe last week. Um, that how is this different than the nations around Israel, right? Because th- that's that's one of the big points. Is that in the the other pagan temples that it didn't it didn't necessarily matter how the animals were slaughtered they just wanted the blood because that's what their god desired it was a soothing uh, the blood is a soothing thing for their god and it keeps his anger off of of the people and his wrath off of the people so um, so it was just blood everywhere it was just as much blood as you could get however you could get it was was fine and yet Hashem in in his mercy and in his gentlemanliness it's not a word. Um, he, you know, this is this is kosher slaughter, shita, um, and so it's it's super quick, and there is there is no there is no pain involved, and we find that in Vayikra one five. Um, next is uh, the fourth step is called kabbalah. Um, the Kohen receives the blood into a what's called a mizrak. A mizrak is a bowl or a vessel, and the blood is collected in the mizrak. Um, if you, you know the word Kabbalah, because, you know, of course, we have Kabbalah in Judaism, um, there's a kosher Kabbalah and there's an unkosher Kabbalah. The kind that Madonna is involved in <laughs> is unkosher. That's not Kabbalah. Um, but kosher Kabbalah, it, the, the word Kabbalah means to welcome. Uh, for instance, on uh, Friday evening, uh, we have a service called Kabbalat Shabbat, right? And that's welcoming the, the Shabbat. And so this, this step, this step number four, um, is where the, the blood is taken in the Mizrach in a bowl. Uh, step number five is uh, halakha, 
This is where the Kohen halakha, we know this word, right? Halak. Halakha means the walking or to walk. Uh, halakha means the Kohen brings the Mizrach, the bowl, um, to the Mizbeach, right? The Mizbeach, Nehoshet, the, the brass altar, the brazen altar, the, the offer, uh, altar of burnt offering, excuse me. Um, and he, so he walks the blood in the Mizrach to the Mizbeach. Okay, Mizbeach is altar. And a lot of terminology in here, but this is really important. So there's the walking. Step number six is called Zricha. Zricha is where the Kohen manipulates the blood or sprinkles the blood on the corner of the offering, of the altar rather, um, that is appropriate for that type of korban. Right? So remember in the first part we said the first step uh, was the uh, Havracha, and that is... Uh, or sorry, hakrava, and that is to announce, to um, to uh, excuse me, declare the type of offering that it is. Well, here in the zikra, the kohen manipulates the blood and pours it at the base of the altar, um, where it is appropriate for that particular offering. Okay, uh, number seven is uh, havshata or havshata where the Kohen removes the animal's skin. This is kind of the beginning of the butchering process. Okay, Havshata is the animal skin is removed. That is Leviticus 1.6. These kind of go verse by verse. Um, number eight is Netuach, where the Kohen sections the animal in the butchering, actually is the butchering the process, in the butchering process, and sections the animal. Because we read that certain parts go here, certain parts do this, certain parts do that, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so that is uh, number, <clears throat> excuse me, that's, that's the step eight of, of the, the slaughtering process. Uh, the next step is called Arichat Ha'avarim, and this is step nine, Arichat Ha'avarim, and this is where the Kohen arranges the sections of the animal that he's already quartered in the order which they'll be brought to the altar. So, like, do you see the intentionality of this? This, like, it's not just some, like, free-for-all. There, it, it's, it's a choreographed it's avodah. It's the service of the offerings. And so um, Arichat Havarim is where he places them in the order they're to be offered. Uh, step number 10, we're, we're getting close to the end, is called Raksah. And Raksah is where the Kohen washes the animal's uh, innards and legs. And so the animal is clean um, during, uh, during step number 10. Now, again, you, you might think, well, why are you using all this Hebrew? Okay. I want you to understand this because step number 10, the Ratzach, is in the Seder that we just did or that you will do if you follow and, and follow a Haggadah. It is, excuse me, step number six in the Haggadah. You have Kadesh, Urchatz, Korpas, Yachatz, Magid, Ratzach. The Ratzach is where you wash, is one of the hand washings. Again, it, I'm, not, I'm not debating on whether we should do hand washing or not. What I'm talking about is how these things overlap and why it's so important to understand they're overlapping because it's not just it's not overlapping, they're interconnected. And they're interconnected because they're all hearkening back to the glory of Beit Hamidash, to the glory of the temple. And and you might say, Well, wait, you said the ultimate destination was not the temple, it was the Garden of Eden. Yes, but understand that the Garden of Eden is sacred space as well. Okay? It's sacred space. Whether it looks like a tent or whether it looks like a beautiful stone building, it's all sacred space. So they're all connected together. There's no, you know, like I've, I've mentioned before, we have this fascination with like, oh, well, the tabernacle was better than the temple because on the first temple, or the first temple was better than the second temple, and the blah, blah, blah. Like, stop. 
Stop trying to divide these things. Yeshua is better than the Torah. Yeah, we know. Stop trying to make these divisions and let's look at how these things are interconnected because they're all one story. They're all trying to get uh, humanity to elevate itself to Hashem and to accept his redemption and his partnership as we repair this world that's broken. I don't want to preach. Okay, let's move on to step number 11. So 10 is roksah, that's the washing of the innards and the animal. Uh, step number 11, this is a long one, get ready. Kiddush, yadayim, viraglayim, which is the Kohen washing his hands and feet from the kior, which is the brazen, uh, which is the, uh, the laver, the brazen laver, right? The kior is the laver. So you have the altar, then you have the laver. So in, after the, 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 the priest does the, the other steps where he slaughters and quarters the animal and organizes it, then he does, washes his hands and feet in the kior, okay, before he comes back and ascends the altar, okay? Step number 12 is haktarah. Haktarah is where the Kohen places the animal sections. He ascends the altar and he places the animal sections on the fire. It's actually a throwing. He actually tosses the animal sections um, on the fire. The next is uh, the number 13, step 13, which is called Mincha. Mincha is where the Kohen mixes the flour with oil and spices and puts it in the fire. Uh, mincha, we have a Mincha offering, right? Mincha is a part of most of these offerings. Uh, number 14 is uh, Nasech, and Nasech is where the Kohen pours the wine out at the base of the altar, okay? And then the final step, final 15, is called uh, Achilah. Achilah is where the Kohen eats the meat in the, uh, in the Chachal, the holy place, uh, depending on the type of, of, uh, of offering that it is. Uh, some korbanot could be eaten elsewhere, um, but this is this uh, this akila is where the kohen, uh, if it's that type of offering, actually partakes of the meat and eats eats of the offering, the portion that is reserved for him, uh, that's not burned on the altar, or, you know, etc. Uh, and so, different type of korbanot can be eaten in different places because they have different levels of kedusha. Different places in the tabernacle have different rules and different levels of kedusha. Different types of offerings have different levels of kedusha. Um, it's interesting, Joe talks about, Joe Good talks about how um, at, I think it's at Shiloh, where the tabernacle stood for 360 some odd years. Um, I'm not a good student, I should remember that. But at, at Shiloh, where you could, so Shiloh is surrounded by mountains, there's mountains on most sides, hills on most sides, and you could eat carbonate anywhere that you could see in sight of the tabernacle. We're told that in the Mishnah. You could eat the uh, sacrificial meats, the the offerings, anywhere in sight of the tabernacle. As long as you could see the tabernacle, certain of these carbonate could be eaten there. So if you're on the top of a hill surrounding uh, the tabernacle at Shiloh, then, then the offering could be eaten there. If you crest that hill and go on the other side and, and lose line of sight with the tabernacle, that is encroachment. That offering cannot be eaten there. And so it's, I, I hope this is not like, you know, <laughs> this is not a, snore, a snooze fest for you guys. This is fascinating to me because these steps of, of offering the carbonate and, and where they can be eaten and the different types of carbonate and where the blood is put on the altar and all these types of things, it shows the intentionality, that's the word I have to keep coming back through, of these offerings. 
these offerings were not just just get blood at any cost because we want to soothe God. That's not what it's about. It's about a process of coming and drawing near. Again, the whole, remember, the whole thing about sacrifice versus offering, the whole idea of karban is to draw close, is to draw near to Hashem. So this whole, these whole steps and these, this ordering has everything to do with intentionally from your heart, your kavanah, your intention, drawing close to Hashem through this process. And so these, the, the Levitical um, commandments that we have are mostly for the priests and how they offer these things, how they manipulate the animal, how they slaughter, where to place the blood, what type of offerings to accept when at the right time. Because remember, the, 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 the koinim have several jobs, right? The koinim, their job is, is set up really in Bereshit uh, with Adam, and that is to avod v'shamar. Avod, which we get avodah, is to serve, right? That is to serve Hashem in his, in his holy house, in Habayit. And it's also to serve the people and to teach them how to, how to draw near to Hashem. The other word, avod v'shamar, shamar is to guard or to protect. When we, when we read keep the Shabbat, that word really is shamar, it's guard the Shabbat. And so the priest's job is to guard, which means they're responsible for knowing where things need to be and how they need to be done so that they don't encroach on Hashem's way of doing things. So I hope this is interesting for you. Um, I find it fascinating, and I just I really want to encourage you to, to do a little more deeper study into this. Rico Cortez has some great inf- uh, you know material on this. Joseph Good is the you know he wouldn't call himself this. I'm going to call him. Uh, he is the best. He is he's the one that you need to, to connect with to learn this stuff. Shalom, shalom. Have a great rest of the week of Pesach, and we'll talk to you again next week. 